0: Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode.
1: Happy New Year and welcome to the Unbreakable Movie Chain. This is the podcast where every episode we have a chat about a movie that we've chosen based on a link to the previous film. I'm Madeline Gould and I'm here with Ed Howells. Hi, Ed.
0: Hello. Happy New Year. Hello.
1: Happy New Year. <laughs> was it a good one?
0: It was a lovely one. Great Christmas, great New Year. You know, it's Christmas time. I spend my entire time watching movies that I've seen before a thousand times. Comfort movies. Uh, yeah, comfort movies. Although I, I did catch Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny on BBC1 ah. shit
1: Oh really? Yeah. I've heard a few people say it's better than they expected it to be, and almost a return to form.
0: <laughs> um...
1: Your face, <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay. Uh,
0: better than better than they expected it to be. That could be quite a low bar. You know what I mean?
1: I mean, I expect it to be absolutely the pits. So yes, I, I, you know, if it's <laughs> if it's better than the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, it's
0: still a bad movie. I don't, I don't, I don't think it is. I don't think it is better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, I, th- I thought I thought Kingdom of Crystal Skull was more fun than Isle of Destiny. It's not good. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah.
1: What else have you been watching over the Christmas period then?
0: Ah, uh, well, so the Christmas week itself, a book ended by two trips to the cinema. Lovely. The first was Christmas Eve. Uh, we went to The Electric in Birmingham to watch... It's a Wonderful Life, (laughs) which, honestly, I was dangerously dehydrated by the end.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is it one that you've seen before and is it like a Christmas tradition and all of that stuff? Is it like a...
0: I wouldn't call it a Christmas tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know some people, I know actually my my dad and his wife uh, sit down and watch, there's a whole host of Christmas movies that they watch every year and It's a Wonderful Life is one of them. I'm not that way about Mm. it. I've seen it a few times uh I think it's absolutely wonderful uh, but it's not on the list of Christmas movies that I have to watch the regular go-tos we did uh, die hard and home alone which mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned are the same movie <laughs> <laughs> and I'll fight anyone who disagrees with me uh, who disagrees with me on that
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. I love that theory. I can't wait they to are. read your paper, Ed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Home Alone is essentially a family-friendly remake of Die Hard.
1: <laughs> I work in a fabric shop a couple of days a week and mm. around Halloween, this bloke came in and was like, my wife sent me in to get some brown fabric. And I was like, okay, can you be a bit more specific? Because we've got quite a few different types of brown fabric. Mm-hmm. And he was like, um, okay, well, it's to make a fancy dress costume. And I was like, okay, what character is it for? And he said, my little three-year-old grandson is obsessed with Home Alone, specifically Joe Pesci's character. And so we, I need, we she's making him like a the coat that Joe Pesci wears yeah. and I was like right I've got the perfect thing and then um, she came in and showed me the picture of him dressed up and honestly it's the best thing I've ever seen this three-year-old <laughs> kid he had this coat on and fingerless gloves and he had he, he had all feathers on him <laughs> 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 absolutely one Halloween costume teeny tiny little Joe Pesci I love that gorgeous anyway sorry yes
0: yes yeah, so as, as I say they're, they're essentially the same movie because they're both about a central protagonist who has to overcome horrible thieves in order to get his family back for Christmas. They're both siege movies. They're both Christmas movies. They both feature <laughs> air-punching
1: violence. Oh, they do.
0: They do. Kevin McAllister is a bit of a sociopath. Like, John, John McClane is in a terrible situation. Kevin McAllister is a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we-, we have to watch those every year. Uh, we also Actually, we didn't this year, uh, but, yeah, we usually watch Muppets Christmas Carol as well, mm. which is our favourite interpretation of that.
1: It is the best interpretation yeah. of
0: Christmas Carol. Jem's also very fond of Scrooge.
1: I possibly think it's the best Muppet film as well. Although I did, when I was younger, I did love Treasure Island. But I don't know. It's got such good songs in Muppet Treasure Island. But I don't. It's just not well. And it's got Tim Curry. But
0: but well, speaking of the songs, even though I didn't watch it this year, I still spent the entirety of Christmas Day and Boxing Day wandering around the house going do 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 Christmas. <laughs> the uh, the other cinema trip i had at the end of the week it was sort of back to sort of uh, yeah, normal services resumed it was a trip to the electric to see the new studio ghibli the boy and the heron how was it i was it's bonkers <laughs> I, I, excellent i'm, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that i uh, knew what was going on at all times <laughs> mm, mm. but i did broadly enjoy it it, it didn't move me particularly Uh, like some Ghiblis have in the past. It's one of their more off-the-wall ones. It's more in the realms of Spirited Away and uh, Howl's Moving Castle and that sort of thing than it is Grave of the Fireflies or uh, When Marnie Was There, which is a particular favourite of mine. It's not quite as weird as uh, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which Mm -hmm. is the the trippiest movie I've ever seen in a cinema, I think.
1: (laughs) Oh really? Is it <laughs> yeah. enjoyably trippy? Like
0: uh, I think so. I get I get into when I watch Studio Ghibli films, I sort of get into this sort of trance state where it's just mm-hmm. sort of happening, and I don't necessarily take everything in. It just sort of, whoa, and I feel like I'm in a mm. bit of a bit of a dream, a bit of a haze. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's a sort of Studio Ghibli mindset. Anyway, I did enjoy it. Uh, I will probably watch it again. Did you see it dubbed or subtitled? Uh, subtitled, just personal preference that's my personal
1: preference too but I know you can see it dubbed I think possibly with a host of celebrity voices like yeah they've
0: got they've got a good cast of actors doing the dub it's an interesting one because they Mm. they are all names they're all you know really good actors but they're not necessarily known for their voice work Florence Pugh Willem Dafoe Gemma Chan uh, Dave Bautista Christian Bale uh, Robert Pattinson yeah a whole a whole bunch of perfectly fine actors but not necessarily known for their work in the field of voice you sort of you see those names and you instantly go oh that's a good cast but But is is it it? actually as good a cast as a regular dub would be for that purpose who can say exactly
1: Okay. Anyway, uh,
0: what have you been watching?
1: Sweet fuck all. <laughs> do you know? Um, Christmas for me is a time of so many different to-do lists. You know, we have to do Christmas several times. It's quite full on. So the first time we sat down to watch anything at all was New Year's Eve. We got back from kind of celebrating Christmas with my mum and were exhausted, so we went to sleep and woke up at about a sort of half past seven and we were all we were a bit muddled. And I was like, I think I need to watch something really bleak. I need some like bleak crime. Okay. So we watched the Red Riding Trilogy, which I don't know if you've ever watched.
0: I have, yes. Uh, I've read the books as well.
1: I've read the books, but I couldn't remember anything about them. Or well, maybe I've only read the first one, but yeah, it was it was exactly what we wanted because mm-hmm. it's about as bleak as you can get. It's got, it's got like, and I realised, I was like, oh, do you know sometimes when I'm in the mood for a bit of crime, it's quite a, a specific set of criteria. Like, I want a bit of police corruption. That's good. I want a bit mm. of journalism. That's good. Bleak and grim, some accent work, Um, lots of smoking indoors, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. So it was perfect <laughs> in that respect. And like, I think we did enjoy it. I think both of us felt a bit unsatisfied by it. I think knowing how complicated the story is in the book mm. um, and I did and I was like okay think about this in its own right but I do feel like there were a lot of questions left unanswered yeah and also in the in the last episode there was a bit where David Morrissey playing um the kind of the copper who was having a crisis of conscience about whether he ought to come clean about all the corruption that he knew about or whether he ought to stick with it or whatever and he, it was flicking back in time between the 74 and 84 mm-hmm. and he looked Looked exactly the same and the only way that you knew whether it was 1983 or 1974 was whether or not this other bloke was in the scene but yeah. at no point and it was I was just a bit like hang on sorry what and everyone was called Bill. And um,
0: it, I was like,
1: oh, God.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the books are a little like that. They're kind of, they're, they're, they're sort of twisty, turny, dark, kind of quite hazy. There's a sort of dreamlike quality to a lot of David Peace's writing because of the voice or there's actually several different voices um, that David Peace uses over the course of those novels, where it puts you inside various characters' heads in a sort of, this is happening right now. And Mm. that present tense first person narrative, which a lot Mm. of the books feature quite heavily, certainly to me, it makes the whole thing kind of dreamlike and you're sort of Mm. grasping onto something because this character is always just sort of lost in his head. You're just sort of there yeah, yeah. In their thoughts. I think it's a really difficult story to translate to the screen mm. for that reason, apart from anything else.
1: I, I'm surprised that it got made, actually. I can imagine pitching that book, because you absolutely have to watch all three to get anything from it. Mm-hmm. Because if you just watch the first one, you'd be like, well, who gives a fuck? Like, what? <laughs> okay. What? Yeah. Yeah, it is quite kind of hazy and dreamlike, and so many of the characters you see them all the way through and it's like, Oh, I get what was happening, because it's it is like a massive, great big jigsaw, but mm-hmm. kind of where you've got to do three separate jigsaws and then yes. flip them over and there's a larger jigsaw on the other side. Yes, and it's yeah, like, Oh exactly. it's um, it's hard work, but it was exactly what we needed, and it did set us off on a little um because we then watched the Pembrokeshire murders, the thing with um I want to say Luke Evans, is that who I mean? Bard the Bowman. Um and which was like like a real case thing, um right. that was bleak and good, and then we watched it Jet- little boy Blue, which is it was a Stephen Graham starring thing um about like a real the real crime um of a little lad who got shot in liverpool and that was real bleak but without any of the kind of satisfying slightly melodramatic hazy grim northern period drama stuff that uh, that red (laughs) riding had so um i can't yeah it's quite it was quite specific our requirements but we Mm. fulfilled them um but no i haven't watched any films I've just booked my tickets to go and see um, Poor Things on the 12th when it comes out so I'm really looking forward to that but um, yeah no honestly I've watched absolutely sweet fuck all movie wise (laughs) although to be fair watching it watching the Red Riding trilogy was like watching three films because they're all about an hour and 40 minutes long so oh can't believe it can you oh let's play some darts (laughs) (laughs) you know So um, this week we are talking about The Bad and the Beautiful. The link from the previous film, we watched Barton Fink, uh, the Coen Brothers Barton Fink. And yeah, the link was the studio system in the golden age of Hollywood. So The Bad and the Beautiful is um, a film which kind of centres a producer during that time. Um, But what's interesting about this one is that it was actually made during the studio system being kind of in full swing, really. Well, kind of towards the dying end of the studio system. So, I think the first thing is for you to give us a little synopsis, Ed. How are you feeling about that? God, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, the film is 117 minutes long. Uh, That's 117 seconds, which by my count is a minute and 57 seconds, Ed. Does that sound right? Ready, steady.
0: Go! So, the film opens. Uh, three phone calls are made. One to an actress uh, called Georgia, uh, one to a director called Fred, and one to a writer called James. These are phone calls from a producer called Jonathan Shields. These phone calls are rejected. The three are then invited to a meeting with uh, big producer Harry Pebble, who sits them down and says, look, I know you don't want to work with this guy, but but is essentially why you should. And the film then becomes, it goes into a flashback where we see three individual stories about why these three individuals do not want to work with Jonathan Shields. Um, At which point, Kirk Douglas, Jonathan Shields kind of takes centre stage. Uh, He's an unscrupulous producer, um, who kind of uses his, um, his his sort of charm and his ability to manipulate his way around and see his way around to become a big shot producer. So the first story uh, follows the director, Fred, who uh, Shields meets at his father's funeral, where he's paid a bunch of people to come and pretend to be mourners. He asks, for, so yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Mm. Fuck. Ah! Um, (laughs) he gives Fred an opportunity to direct movies and they make movies together and then Fred comes to him with a movie that he really 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 wants to make and Shields is like yeah okay we can try and make this it needs a million dollar budget at least Uh, eventually he gets the financing for that um but he decides that Fred is not the man to helm it. So Fred is furious and he never speaks to Shields again, but he does go on and become a big Hollywood Oscar-winning director. Oscars are going to be very important to this movie. Uh, This conversation, Oscars are going to feature quite heavily. Mm -hmm. Um, Then... We get back to the office where Pebbles is there and he's uh, quite sarcastic with Fred. He's like, oh, yeah, well, so clearly, yeah, he ruined you, didn't he? Um, mm-hmm. Then we can move on to Georgia's story. Uh, Georgia was uh, an alcoholic, the daughter of a, a deceased actor. She's sort of built a shrine to him and uh, is obsessed with all that. And uh, Shields sort of takes her and makes her into a star And they kind of fall in love. They have a bit of a romance. Um, But Shields hasn't really got time for that. So he has a little fling with somebody else and she catches him with this somebody else. And that's sort of the end of that. Go back to the... Uh, Office And Pebbles is like, well, yeah, but you did all right, didn't you? And then we move on to the third story with the writer James Lee Bartlow. Um, By this point, Jonathan Shields is a big success as a producer. And we know this because now he's grown a moustache. Yes, um, yes. Which is very important. James Lee doesn't want anything to do with Hollywood, really. He just wants to write his novels and live with his wife. But his wife wants all that sort of glamour and Hollywood stuff. So she sort of pressures him into going to Hollywood And then uh, Shields sees that the wife is actually not really very good for Bartlow and he sort of engineers it so that she has an affair with another actor and they end up dying in a plane crash. And then uh, Bartlow's furious with Shields when he finds it all out and never speaks to him again. Um, Shields uh, directs a movie and that's a disaster. Uh, he loses all his money, nobody in Hollywood wants to work with him, Uh, so then he gets back in touch with Pebble, who tries to get these three together, because with the power of those three, they can get a movie financed, and they turn down the offer, point blank, but as they're leaving, Shields is on the phone with Pebble, and they're having a chat, and the three of them listen in on the extension, which is kind of a recurring motif in the film. And that is hmm. the whole film. I don't know how long that took. Probably about an hour.
1: No, do you know what? It's only four and a half minutes. <laughs> Fucking hell. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I say it's fine. I mean, maybe we ought to start um, putting in a penalty. I Also, I'm sure in the edit I can make it a bit shorter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's cheating. Cheating. <laughs> do you want to take us through some housekeeping? You can't talk about this movie without talking about the Academy, and Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start with uh, its success at the Oscars. So yeah, The Bad and Beautiful, uh, 1952. It was released actually on Christmas Day, uh, December 25th, 1952. That was when it had its Los Angeles premiere. At the Oscars, it received six nominations, and it won five of them. So it won, yeah, Gloria Graham, won Best Supporting Actress. Uh, It won Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Black and White, Best Art Direction uh, and Set Decoration. And it won Best Costume. Um, The one that it was nominated for and didn't win was Best Actor for Kirk Douglas.
1: Who did he lose out to?
0: Uh, Gary Cooper won for his role in High Noon.
1: Fair, actually. Have you seen High Noon?
0: I haven't, actually, no.
1: It's really worth it. And Gary Cooper is really good in it. So, Mm. kind of fair. Oh, well, no. Do you know what? I don't think fair do's. That's revealing something (laughs) about what I think. I think Kirk Douglas is absolutely fucking phenomenal. So, yes, yes, carry on.
0: Yeah, uh, just a point of curiosity, the others up for Best Actor that year were Alec Guinness for The Lavender Hill Mob, uh, mm-hmm. José Ferrer for Moulin Rouge, and Marlon Brando for Viva Zapata. Interesting, okay. Just out of uh, just out of interest as well, Gloria Graham, um, winning Best Supporting Actress, uh, beat out Colette Marchand for Moulin Rouge, Terry Moore for Come Back Little Sheba, Thelma Ritter for With a Song in My Heart, and Gene Hagen for Singing in the Rain. Interesting. Yeah. So it was directed by Vincente Minnelli who was famously husband to Judy Garland and father of Liza Minnelli. He's quite an interesting one because his marriage to Judy Garland didn't actually last all that long. And uh, it is widely believed that he was gay. Certainly, uh, it's been said quite often that he, when he lived in New York, he, was, uh, he lived an openly gay life. And then when he went over to Los Angeles, he was pressurized back into the closet by the studios.
1: Oh, gosh, right.
0: So, yeah, he's a sort of... Uh, serial maker of films that win Oscars. So he made uh, An American in Paris, which won six Oscars. And that was when he uh, he got a nomination for Best Director there. He also made Gigi, which won nine Oscars. Mimi Me in St. Louis, which starred Judy Garland. His films, they had uh, quite a reputation for doing quite well. I think Gigi was the one that he actually won Best director for. The writers on the film. So it's from a story by George Bradshaw. And the screenplay is written by uh, Charles Schnee. Who wrote they the, Who wrote They Live By Night. He also wrote The Furies in 1950 and Red River, the uh, John Wayne film. The producer. Interesting. Uh, he's quite a prolific producer. Again, he produced They Live By Night. Um, also the Marlon Brando Julius Caesar he was also quite a prolific actor so, so John Houseman and he showed up in things like Rollerball, John Carpenter's The Fog and he actually won Best Supporting Actor in 1974 uh, for his role in The Paper Chase. Oh. Um, so yeah he was actually quite a prolific producer and prolific actor as well. The art direction now this is where we start to get really Oscar heavy. Uh, so it's a team of Edward Carfagno and Cedric Gibbons also the set decoration is a team of uh, F. K. Gleason and Edwin B. Willis. So we'll start with Edward Carfagno. He won three Oscars in his career, off, I think that's 16 nominations. Blimey. Yeah, the other ones he won were for uh, Julius Caesar and... Ben-Hur. We'll then move on to one of the set decorators, F.K. O'Gleason. He won four Oscars in his career. He won for Gigi, for Somebody Up There Likes Me. He won for this, Bad and Beautiful, and he won for An American in Paris. Then we come on to the real heavy hitters. So we'll start with the other set decorator, Edwin B. Willis. He, in his career, received 32 nominations, and he won eight Oscars. Wow. So those were for Somebody Up There Likes Me, Julius Caesar, An American in Paris, Little Women, The Yearling, Gaslight, and Blossom in the dust. Ooh. Um, so those were his eight wins of 32 nominations. I could go further and uh, list the nominations. Uh, then we come to the real heavy hitter, the art director Cedric Gibbons, mm. who in his career uh, received 39 Oscar nominations. What? Of which he won 11. Oh um, my so, god. Again, a lot of the same films are coming up here. They really, these four worked as a sort of art. Team on Mm. movies within the studio system so the ones he won for again somebody up there likes me julius caesar uh, bad and beautiful an american in paris little women the yearling gaslight blossoms in the dust pride and prejudice the merry widow and the bridge of san luis Rey from 1930 Mm. so that was his first win was in 1930 his last one was in 1957 Mm. Uh, So that's 27 years, in which time he picked up 39 nominations.
1: I mean, that's absolutely
0: (laughs) absurd. ridiculous
1: but I do think that kind of goes to show you it is a machine that is churning Mm -hmm. films out that is very characteristic of the studio system during this period so that's actually quite a good representation of that
0: absolutely is it was just it was a machine just churning it out the other Oscar winner on this is uh, Helen Rose who in her career got two wins off ten nominations the other one was for a film called I'll Cry Tomorrow in 1956
1: which I've Mm -hmm. not seen she's costume right Helen Rose well the women Costumes—that's how she's credited. It's really weird, mm. which are mouth-watering. <laughs> like they There's, are.
0: A couple of those dresses are really spectacular.
1: But the men's costume is also really gorgeous, and it's very mm-hmm. easy to kind of discount men's costume in something like this because it's like, oh no, you, but they've just got a suit on. But it's like, no, 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 yeah. no, no. I, this, the suits tell a story as well. Like the way yeah. that Kirk Douglas's suits change as he gets more money throughout the course of the film is like it's really interesting
0: yeah the the other person to mention is the composer david ruskin who essentially he is uncredited uh and his music is uncredited on so many things because composers really were yeah like stock music that was featured in all sorts of stuff like the old uh, superman serials and the green hornet serials so he would just write this music and it would get recorded and then used for Whatever. He did the arrangement for the Charlie Chaplin movie, Modern Times, which I guess would be a piano arrangement for accompanists. He died in 2004, but his music does still pop up in things. Quite recently in Captain America, the first Avenger and uh, the recent movie Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Yeah, his work just sort of endures and pops up in stuff. I think particularly... I guess period stuff. The film was made for a budget of $1,558,000 and took at the box office $3,373,000. I think the studio was probably perfectly happy with that return.
1: Absolutely, yeah, not bad at all. Uh,
0: The film stars Lana Turner as Georgia Laurison, Kirk Douglas as Jonathan Shields, Barry Sullivan as Fred Amiel, uh, Dick Powell as James Lee Bartlow, Walter Pidgeon as Harry Pebble, um, Gloria Graham as Rosemary. As I said, she was the one who won Best Supporting Actress. Um, And actually, I just saw her in It's a Wonderful Life the other day. So Mm. it's been rather nice to get... More Gloria Graham. She was apparently very insecure. Um, oh, Really? Yeah. Apparently her acceptance speech um, at the Oscars for this was, thank you very much. And she ran off stage.
1: Wow. Wow. And she said
0: in later life that she... Like immediately just sort of gave it to her three-year-old son to play with, and like apparently her son used to just sleep with it in his cot and stuff. And she's like, "I don't even want to look at it. I can't." God, she has wow. Apparently, no self-belief whatsoever. Gosh. Uh, the uh, just rounding out the cast, we've got Gilbert Rowland as Gaucho and Elaine Stewart as Lila. Well, both both of them actually in in similar roles as kind of um, temptresses. Yes. Or, um, yeah. Home Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of the sort.
1: Thank you, Ed. What did you think of it?
0: Um, yeah, it's interesting. I. I didn't love it. I got to say. Ah. I think I think it's a very good film, but a lot of it just it feels very. It's just it's it's a little bit lighter than I was anticipating. Right. Okay. And actually, a bit called a, a bit kind of. Um, it's quite celebratory, actually. Ultimately, I think it's quite celebratory of uh, the movie biz um, in mm. a way that I think is a little bit. It just, it just felt a little bit self satisfied. My other issue with it really is that I can't. I kind of didn't really care about the stories it didn't grab me an engagement i think that's um because of the structure because it starts where you meet these characters the three of them are huge successes and there's sort of like there's nothing to grab me stakes wise Mm -hmm. it's like what like i think the the, the flashback structure doesn't work for me here whereas if i compared it to something like double indemnity
1: Mm.
0: where it that's all in flashback as well. But it starts with this guy in a really terrible situation. And what hooks you is, fuck, how did this happen to this guy? Oh my God, what's the story here? Whereas this starts with three people who don't want to talk to a guy and don't want to work <laughs> with a guy. And they're all perfectly happy. And the guy they don't want to talk to isn't. But why should I care? You know what I mean? Mm, I know what um, you mean. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that that's sort of, that's where I am with it, I think. I don't I don't know that I'd watch it again.
1: I absolutely would. I really, really mm. like this film. I think my issue with it is mm. that when it sets you up with <laughs> three people and you know that you're going to hear their point of view on yeah. what has happened, by the time you've done the first two, and let's be fair, the second part is probably the most compelling because... Um, the second part deals with Lana Turner and she is an alcoholic and she's got a really interesting backstory as a character and where she, how she's got to where she's got to and the relationship between them is really interesting, manipulative and that section culminates with I think one of the Best scenes in the film where yes. um, Kirk Douglas kind of shows her and shows us more of himself than he probably um, means to and it's really mm-hmm. a fantastic bit of acting. Um, yeah. And then you're like, ah oh, shit, we've got to watch the third we've got a whole other <laughs> bit to go now. <laughs> Which, granted then does turn out to be really interesting. I mean, so the whole thing is bookended by the setup and then the kind of payoff with the, mm-hmm. the question will you work with him? And then the decision which is left ambiguous and then there's the this sort of three-part bit in the center and each part culminates in quite a shocking reveal and each shocking reveal intensifies so the first one is kirk douglas as jonathan shields shafts his mate that's quite shocking but it's yeah. like oh, okay then the second one he butch, how do you say it not turns her over Passes her over. He he, he he
0: rejects her essentially, isn't he?
1: That, and then she crashes her car. <laughs> yeah, well she
0: she she attempts suicide, doesn't she?
1: Oh right, is that oh is that what? Yeah, yeah. Okay. She's
0: she's she's got her hands off the wheel and she's just foot to the pedal and just going with traffic going by and honking their horns.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. And then the final one, of course, is the actual loss of human life. Um, which, and I was really shocked when I first saw it and I was like, shit, they've killed her. They've killed the wife. Um. <laughs> At the heart of it is, I think, for me, this question of... Well, it's the question that Pebble asks at the very end of the film in that final bit he says uh, you've got to give the devil his due and my question I suppose is um, is that so? Do do we think so? And it's kind of the film is weighing up the question of whether what Shields has done for each of them in terms of setting them up for their career and kind of really especially with Lana Turner's character dragging her kicking and screaming into the spotlight to them is it worth the human cost, Lana Turner, you know, obviously driven to a suicide attempt, and the writer actually loses his wife. And it's like, is is all of that worth it? And I think that that's one of the kind of key questions that we're asked. Like, in that first scene, I mean, I don't know about you, but when it was like, it was clear that this particular character was ringing up all of these people trying to get help, and all of them were so vehemently saying no, they were so... Like, absolutely not. What a piece of shit. I then was watching yeah. it think, thinking like, oh my God, what is he going to do that is this bad?
0: Interesting. I um I didn't feel that way. Interesting. Because, so the the, the first phone call is the director, uh, mm-hmm. Fred. Um, He gets, he's on set, he's making a movie and he gets called to the phone and he sort of just laughs yeah. and goes away. So it's like, all right, that's sort of done. The second one is Georgia, played by Lana Turner, mm-hmm. who pretends that she can't hear what her maid is. Saying. But then she picks up the phone and listens in which I think I mentioned is a kind of recurring motif. It happens a few times. It is. It suggested to me, oh, this is somebody who wants to hear his voice. This is somebody who who potentially loves this man. That was what I read into that, that actually she's saying, no, I don't want anything to do with him, but actually I do. And then the third one's the writer who actually does speak to him, um, but just says, drop dead. Yeah. And puts the phone down. Um, and he's sort of the most the most vehement in that moment. And then when the three of them go to this meeting with Pebble, They're all, three of them are very jolly about the whole Mm. thing. They're very, very cheerful.
1: (laughs) And actually there's a scene earlier in the film, well, no, it's later in the film, earlier in the chronology Ooh. where Georgia is talking to the writer whose name I've forgotten and Fred comes into the room and she kind of makes the introduction and that's how they all know each other so yeah. it's kind of like they are they are united in their mutual hatred for Jonathan Shields like mm. that's kind of what brings them together and unites them and then they mm. all end up sitting on the sofa in this position of power over him to decide whether or not they as a unit can kind of save him or not so it's very much about power and the way the power is so quickly and easily passed from person to person, but also how, the, how all of them are so easily manipulated into thinking they have any power at all, when actually they don't.
0: Do they, do they owe shields?
1: No. No? No I, no, I don't think so. Interesting. They would do if at any point Shields had said, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. But he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He almost, against their will, gives them... Well, no, doesn't even give them, but he gives them the opportunity and the um, impetus. And he, it, mm-hmm. he does it cruelly. He manipulates them and plays them to get the best out of them. It's like,
0: mm. wh- he, what do you think? <laughs> well, what, what I saw was a man taking three people who who sort of don't really know how to get to where they want to go or get to where they could go and he moulds them. Mm. Like there are several times during the film where it's like the film giving little hints and tips, little filmmaking mm. uh, teaching, teaching little filmmaking things yeah. um, and just sort of little storytelling things or, or little acting things like there's a, there's a bit where uh, Shields is sitting with the writer and He's got this draft and the writer's furious because he's cut these huge, great big chunks out of this scene. Mm. And he's like, the, but the mother has this amazing speech where, you know, she, her son has just died. And, like, and and she just goes, no, we've cut all that. We're going to put the camera right in her face and she's mm. going to want to speak, but she's not going to be able to. And the audience are going to read into into that something that is a thousand times better than what you could write yeah little there's little loads of little tidbits throughout the film where he's moulding them into what he needs them to be but in so doing he gives them the tools to succeed if they want to in this industry, beyond that point, like when when Georgia uh, decides to leave Shields Studios mm. uh, and go to the rival studio, um, he's like, yeah, right, yeah, leave leaves leaves the money on the table. Like, I think it's it's Pebble who's put out by that because her films then gross like 7 million dollars for mm. whatever studio it was that she went to from then. It's a kind of transactional relationship Shields has with these characters. Do you think so? Well, I I I think from his point of view, it is or he wants it to be at least, more so than from their end. So I think I think when Shields looks at the director and looks at Georgia and looks at the writer he sees what I can shape these people into and what where they can get me and you know if he has deeper feelings of friendship for the director or love for the actress then that's completely Beside the point as far as Shields is concerned. But what he does is manipulate them into thinking... He manipulates the director into thinking that he is his friend. He manipulates Georgia into thinking that he does love her. He does love her, but that's not going to get in the way of what he wants. Um, And actually, Georgia has a line where she says to uh, the writer later on, um, to uh, James, James Lee, mm. you're the only person I've ever met who started off hating Shields and then liking him. Because Shields doesn't manipulate James Lee in the same way he manipulates his wife that's the manipulation he employs there to get what he wants out of the writer I think
1: the reason I think that they don't owe him anything is because I think Mm -hmm. that Shields has already got from them what he wants we see him get what he wants from them because we see the point at which he drops them and actually the investment that he makes in specifically Georgia as an actor there's no longevity to that it's not like he's investing that time in coaching her and kind of shaping her molding her so that the studio can then have a star attached mm. it's self-serving i think it's almost to do with his own ego rather mm. than any kind of tangible benefit to himself or the studio into in like career i think it's like here is this here is this actor who he worshipped as a kid mm-hmm. and now his daughter is seemingly without talent and an alcoholic and a shambles, and he is gonna make her into the biggest star. And it's kind of almost like a test for himself. It kind of doesn't yeah. have anything to do with the actual business of making movies. And yeah. once he's achieved that, it's like, no, I don't, I, I'm done. I've got my reward, and my reward is that I've achieved it.
0: Well, he's sort of testing himself against his father's standard, isn't he?
1: Yeah. His father, who was. I mean, we learn at the start, his father was absolutely despised. I think there's something interesting in particular, obviously, in um, Georgia and Jonathan as like kind of 1950s Nepo babies. (laughs) (laughs) This thing about needing to prove they need to get out from under the shadow cast by their parents and succeed in their own right and make something of themselves in their own right. And she can't do it on her own and he has to help her, you know? I do think that, as well, the um, relationship he has with Fred starts out as a genuine partnership. And I think that that is the kind of... In that section is where you see the kind of pact with the devil idea. That thing of, like, they mm. were in it together and then he sees an opportunity to succeed without him. He he runs with it. He goes with it, you know?
0: Well, he sort, he sort of bites off more than he can chew, doesn't he? Uh, because Fred's come to him with... This novel that he wants to adapt. And he's written the whole treatment and everything is there. And they they sort of together are working on it and trying to get the financing for it. And then they, they they go to Pebble, who at that point is the head of the studio that Shields is working for, before he creates his own studio. And Pebble sort of raises the stakes on him. He goes, yeah, okay, I'll let you. In fact, you, you are going to produce this movie and it will be a disaster. And then you'll be fucked. Because nobody in this town will work with you. And at that point, Shields is like, oh shit, what can I do? So Shields needs the movie to be a success at that point. And he doesn't have faith in his friend... Mm-hmm. to direct a million dollar picture so yeah he has to, he has to go elsewhere to somebody more established a, a safe pair of hands who ironically shows up later in the film and um, yeah Shields really pisses him off yeah yeah yeah
1: turns <laughs> up in the film and won't be told what to do do you think that the structure that kind of three three act sandwiched between kind of an opener and a closer do you think does it work in terms of pacing
0: not for me I mean I already said about how the structure doesn't it's it sort of It acted as a uh, sort of hindrance to my engagement. So yeah, with each sort of new segment, I kind of, it was like resetting for me a little bit in my mind. Do you think,
1: would it have worked better if we hadn't had that sandwich effect? Like, you know, if we'd just started at the beginning of his career and gone through it with him and seen some highs and lows and actually focused on him rather than seeing him through the eyes of these three sort of secondary characters, but who are actually sort of primary characters.
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that would have worked better for me. I yeah, think the, yeah. The, the flashback structure uh, hampers it for me.
1: It felt a bit like, and actually, I guess this is sort of appropriate considering what came out when, but Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. where it's the kind of trio of sort of ragtag people um, where you've you've got the star and the lady and the backstage guy who are all kind of rough and tumble together. And I did, as I was watching this, I did think, gosh, this is like singing in the rain but depressing. (laughs) (laughs) There's that weird scene where Jonathan proposes to Fred's eventual wife on behalf of mm-hmm. Fred in front of both of them with a ring he's bought. And it's like, mm. I don't know, there's genuine love for Fred there in that moment mm. because he's trying to push him into doing the right thing. But it's almost like he's such a puppet master. He's so controlling mm. and so... Do you think it's deliberate? Do you think that he pl- he plans out how the ways in which he's going to no. manipulate and no. control?
0: No, I don't, I don't think so. I think people like this are, they, they're quite common in our business we will both have met these people who are sort of going places and when you're with them they kind of make you feel like you're important and it's because in that moment you are important to them but they are going places and they will not be attached to you for long you know what I
1: mean? I know what you mean as an actor you when you enter into a company of to do a show or whatever it Mm. is, you do form really intense bonds with those people for the time that you're doing it. You know, there are plays that I've done where I thought I was going to be best friends for life with all the people that... I was in the play with and I literally can't remember what they're called now. (laughs) I can't remember (laughs) what their names are. When the tractor beam is on you, it's a very intense experience but it moves past you very quickly and then it's very cold in the dark. Um, As as Georgia keeps saying, it's very cold sitting on the floor.
0: So what, what does Jonathan do for each of them? So so Fred, at the start, he has many of the skills to be a big-time director. He certainly believes he can direct movies better than most of the people in Hollywood. What he can't do is sell himself. And that's what he needs jonathan for that's what jonathan does for him that's that's what a producer does it's sort of a love letter to producers this whole thing it's like yeah you may not like it it's ugly they manipulate but actually they get this important shit done so that's that's what fred gets georgia claims not to even have aspirations to be a star even though she probably does it's really interesting that scene between the two of them where he's in her apartment and she's built a shrine to her father who died 10 years previously and she's sort of crying in the dark and drinking. Uh, she says that she's attempted suicide a whole bunch of times. But he doesn't believe that, does he? I mean, she may have gone through the motions but he, he tells her essentially that she's just playing a part of grief and not doing it very well either. He, he says he says she's giving a, a bit a bit player's performance. Yeah, yeah. And all of that. And he pulls her out of it. And that's what I, what I wanted to come on to with the end of her little segment where she's driving the car after being rejected by him. She's driving the car, driving the car and she just takes her hands off the wheel and foot down and she's just screaming down the road and in absolute pieces. Ah, suddenly she's found the truth of what of what she'd been sort of performative grief for yeah. the previous 10 years. It made me think of, I recently heard a story about <laughs> Alan Rickman on the set of Galaxy Quest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, Tim Allen had a moment where he was just like, No, I've got to go to my trailer. I've just, I'm suddenly, I don't like this. I was just feeling all of these things and I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I've got these, I've got to just go and sit in my trailer for a bit. And Tim Allen went off to his trailer and Rickman apparently turned to somebody and just went, My God, I think he's just experienced acting for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's a little bit what. What Jonathan (laughs) sort of teaches uh, Georgia how to act. Her first day on a set where she's got her one line. Yeah. So the line, the line is, it's a very. She's got one line in this movie. The line is simply, "Read any good books lately?" (laughs) Yeah. What she does, she stands there and she sort of sways her hips from side to side, and she's got a bit of a pout on, and she goes, "Read any good books lately?" (laughs) <laughs> it's like oh my god <laughs> um and so they they cut and then you don't actually hear what Uh, what Jonathan says to her. Mm. He gives her a note and um, goes back off set. So he's actually sort of doing the job of a director, even though he's just a a producer on the set, but he's doing a director's job here. He's molding her into the star that she needs him to be, that Mm. he needs her to be, sorry. And yeah, we see the next take and it's just a very natural, very natural line read um, with her book there. Totally different. Totally different.
1: I don't think he falls in love with her at all. Interesting, okay. You know when he picks her up and throws her in the pool, um, which I laughed my head off at. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> There's a couple of scenes that I laughed my head off at, and one of them is when um, they're watching all of the actors try on the cat costumes, yes. which I just think is hilarious. <laughs> and yeah, so he he kind of he's holding her in a very sort of windswept heroic romantic ways kind of carrying her um, and her head is rolling around on his shoulder and it's very Mm -hmm. romantic and he's gazing down at her in a way that you think maybe it's like a loving way and then he chucks her in the pool and they Mm -hmm. have this whole conversation and she tells him that she loves him and then the phone rings and it's this repeated kind of motif that you mentioned before about Mm -hmm. basically her listening in on his conversations on the phone. He's talking to somebody about her and she's listening in from the other room and he hears the phone click so he knows that she's listening and then when he hears the phone click again and he knows she isn't listening anymore he says I know how to handle her now I think that that is him making the decision to break her heart and make her feel that real emotion and that Mm. will make her a great actress like that is what's going to make her great
0: oh how interesting
1: and he's like I'm going to give her what she wants and she's going to be fabulous fabulous in this film because she's in love and being loved and I'm going to shower her with the love and affection she wants and Mm -hmm. then I'm going to destroy it and she'll be fabulous and I don't need her to be involved with me anymore after that. She needs to go away and be amazing. And it's almost like Mm. he'll know that he's responsible for that. Mm. Yeah, His success to him as a producer is so much more than box office. And awards and all of that stuff. It's about mm. his personal relationships and what he manages. Basically, what the people end up owing him for.
0: But you don't. But you don't think they do owe him.
1: No, I know. <laughs> I think he thinks they do, but I don't think they do.
0: I'm not sure he does think they do. Actually, at no point in the film do I think that he thinks anybody owes him anything. I, th- I think. I think it's actually a kind of uh, sort of a, a very kind of an American dream right kind of movie. So it's that idea that you go out and you make of yourself what you can and nobody owes you anything you don't owe anybody anything it's all off your own back it's that sort of ideology that I think is at the heart of this movie I like that I don't think he has ever owed anybody anything and I don't think he thinks anybody owes him anything
1: yeah I'll go with that At the centre of this film, there is also a question about... A little bit like with Barton Fink, um, like high art versus low art... Because he, as a producer, he has been employed by Pebble, kind of in that first vignette. Um, Mm And he's been employed, along with his mate Fred, to just churn out B-movies. That's what he's, you know. And he aspires to higher quality. He aspires to higher art. It's like the pursuit of that high art to him is worth the kind of human sacrifice. It's worth jeopardising his friendships and his relationships. It's worth driving mm. his lover to a suicide attempt it is worth a woman dying to get her out of the way so that a writer can write for him i think it's worth pointing out that the book that the writer then publishes um which wins the pulitzer prize is mm. about his dead wife and it's almost like well she had she had to die in order for that amazing work to be brought out of him. And I think Hmm. that Shields absolutely thinks that artistic integrity is more valuable than like human life Hmm. and human experience.
0: I'm interested in this. I'm not entirely sure I agree.
1: Yeah, no, I've just sort of thought of it in my brain at the moment. So I would like to posit this as a theory and then I'd like you to convince me I'm wrong. (laughs) Uh, Well, I,
0: I don't have much of a counter-argument, except to say that in that first vignette it's not his aspiration to create higher art. That comes from Fred, who brings the novel, whereas Shields wants to make, um, what is it, the son of the Catman.
1: Yeah, but I think he is interested in the higher art because if he wasn't, you know, when they go to the costume fitting, they're making the Mm Catman. All of which I think has to be a reference to Cat People. Has to be. Because Cat People is a film about a woman who turns into a giant cat when she's sexually Mm -hmm. aroused um and at no point do you ever see that monster you don't ever see the cat you see Mm -hmm. shadows and darkness and sounds which is exactly what they decide to do
0: yeah they have that great conversation that they were it's like what 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 can we show them that will uh yeah make their spine tingle or whatever it is he says eyes in the dark
1: i think that scene is very cinematic in that it is about cinema and it is pure cinema playing with light and dark but like the images that you see in that scene as they're trying to solve this problem of how they're going to frighten their audience I just think that scene is beautiful to look at it's so gorgeous but it is also about the creative process it's about them trying to make the they're trying to make this piece of shit script into the very very best thing it can possibly be like that's their goal they aren't interested in churning something out they're interested in polishing a turd (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I think that 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 to me signals that they are interested in higher arts, A bit like I was talking about last week with the character of Audrey in Barton Fink. I think that that is very much Shields being a kind of creative midwife. Mm -hmm. He's, he knows that this director has got the answer, but he just needs to pull it out of him. He needs to prompt it out of him.
0: Do you think at that point that Fred comes to him with the book. Do you think Shields has got himself into a bit of a rut Ooh. creatively? He's come to a point where it's like, okay, and this is going to be my lot in life now. Yeah, and then he sees Fred's idea and is like, and that sort of spurs him on. He's like, no, okay, I can actually achieve the things properly. Is it? Is it a moment of self doubt?
1: I don't know. You know, I'm not sure about self doubt, but I think it's definitely a moment that shows. I don't mean transactional because it's not. I think it is more than that, but it is that thing about you can't create art in a vacuum. It's like, yeah. it is about relationships and is about, it is about a creative process that you share with someone else. And I think part of what happens in the third vignette with the writer is like, yes, the right, um, Shields recognises that the writer does need somebody there to help him birth his creation, but the, mm-hmm. his wife is the wrong person yes. and he's the right person. So he very much separates them and takes him off fishing while his wife's flying about in aeroplanes with them. What's he called?
0: Uh, Gaucho.
1: Gaucho. I think that that is one of maybe the only moments in the film where we see Shields needing someone else. When Mm. Fred comes to him with his book, it's about stimulus. And I think Mm -hmm. through most of the rest of the film, we see Shields providing stimulus to other people. And in that moment, we see fred providing stimulus to him and that's really good that's mm. a nice kind of change in dynamic to what we see throughout the rest of the film and i think that's what yeah. lila gives him lila provides him a stimulus that he doesn't have anywhere he, he can take from somebody for a change whereas he is giving energy to everybody else all the time um mm-hmm. which makes him sound kind of selfless and heroic i don't mean that at all no what do you think about shields as a kind of um as an anti-hero is that an appropriate word to use for what he is yeah for
0: sure yeah, I would say so. I mean, first of all, I think Kirk Douglas is fabulous in this. I think he's absolutely terrific. So the play, the, play, the place he has to get to really by the end of the film is a place of some sort of humility, A kind of realizing that actually he needs these other people as much as they needed him. He th- he thinks he knows it all and can do it all, you know what I mean? He thinks he knows exactly what is right the whole time and then he actually tries to do it himself and realises that he can't because it's a disaster so he tries to direct this yeah he tries to direct this big film in in that third segment and he has this it's another moment where the film is giving us little uh screenwriting and uh, filmmaking lessons and where he has this conversation with the director is like you're you're absolutely killing this scene. There's so much stuff that you're not getting out of it. And the director's like, I could get that stuff out of it. I don't want to get that stuff out of it. I could make every scene a climax, but then the whole thing would be a mess. It would be a disaster. And so the director walks off and Shields takes over because he thinks that he can do it. He thinks he knows best. He's grown up in the movie industry and he's always there on set, giving his little tidbits of advice and sort of molding people and shaping them. And, you know, he, he knows what makes a good movie. And then he sits down, to watch it and he congratulates everybody on their work and then he comes to the director who needs his head examined
1: he is an anti hero because he is morally questionable but Mm -hmm. i think that he's a man who is absolutely committed to making movies that's what he is absolutely dedicated to and that is that comes at the expense of his personal relationships but it doesn't come at the expense of his own Mm self-awareness and he isn't deluded he he knows that it's his fault that the film doesn't work Mm -hmm. and he is able to he's it's not like he's some kind of megalomaniac who's going around going fire the costume people it's their fault that Mm -hmm. it's wrong he's like no i can see exactly what's right about this and it's
0: well there's a really interesting thing when he takes over as the director on that film. Somebody's talking about how he became just the most uh, generous, tolerant, mm. wonderful director that you would want to kind of work with, and you know, all that very indulgent uh, is one of the words that's used to describe him. He sort of, as a director, is just this really lovely man to everybody there on set.
1: It's that creative midwifery thing. When he steps into the role of director, he becomes a person who allows everybody to be at their absolute best. But that makes a bad film in a way like because he's deferring to everybody else's expertise mm-hmm. and no yeah. one's got an overall picture on it all let's talk a bit about kirk douglas are you like have you seen many things with him in
0: not a massive amount no i don't think i've seen very many kirk douglas films
1: this is only the second film i've ever seen with him in to my shame I haven't seen spartacus which is one of those films that apparently everyone needs to see and i <laughs> uh, but i see i've seen him in champion which i uh, enjoyed very much i enjoyed his performance very much i think i just find him I I find him really compelling on screen. I just, Whenever he's on screen I cannot take my eyes off him and I think he's got a real vulnerability a real strength, a real power and I think this was possibly quite a popular acting style at the time. I think Orson Wells had this characteristic as well this slightly kind of explosive quality I mean I, I'm thinking in particular about the scene between him and Lana Turner where um, the film has wrapped and Lana Turner's character Georgia is at the party and um, Jonathan isn't there. So she goes to his house and they have this scene where she says, I know that you go a bit dark when the film is finished and let me be here to help you. Let me give you what you need. Let me all this stuff. And then it turns out he's got this vamp upstairs in this amazing (laughs) black cocktail dress. My God. He delivers this fantastic explosive, but short little speech about how he needs to be a bit dark sometimes and I just think that scene I could watch that scene over and over and over and over and over again for his acting in it I just think He's absolutely amazing. He's so compelling. It's so raw and it's so vulnerable and it's so horrible, but I really love him in that moment as well. Like I just I I think from what I've read, I mean, it very much Kirk Douglas kind of helped define the kind of anti-hero type character in a lot of these films during this period. And I yeah. get it, cause like I love him. Like if he was the most wrongest, most like Robert Mitchum, like the, <laughs> it doesn't matter yes. how evil they are in whatever films they're playing, I am so drawn to them and so I I am on their side, no matter what yeah. I, no matter what they do in the film, I kind of want them to succeed, you know.
0: I it turns out I haven't seen all that many Kirk Douglas films either. Um, it's kind of Spartacus, Spartacus, and this really. I need to address that. I should watch like Paths of Glory or something.
1: Well. It took me quite a while to realise that Lana Turner was Lana Turner. I think I thought she was someone else. What did you think of her in this?
0: Yeah, she's real good. Um, yeah. I I wouldn't have been able to pick Lana Turner out of a lineup, to be honest with you. If, no. if you got give me a lineup of of these sort of golden age of Hollywood starlets, yeah, who no. would I recognize? I would recognize uh, Joan Crawford. Betty Davis, I'd recognize. But many of them they sort of blend into one. Lana Turner's one that I yeah I wouldn't have immediately.
1: I don't know what I thought she looked like, but it wasn't that. But no, she was good in this. Mm. I did find her. Yeah, good. she's real good. Um, real yeah. good. Yeah.
0: What, what 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 do you think of her sort of her big moment, her big breakdown scene in the car?
1: I I think it's great. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think it was interesting I was reading a contemporary review of it and it really didn't like her performance at all, particularly the scene in the car which it, you know said was sort of hyster- she descends into hysteria and all of that and it mm. wasn't particularly compelling. I mean of course it's a melodrama because that's just the period of time we're dealing with like that's the style of filmmaking but I do think that Vincent Minnelli's direction and obviously all the art direction cinematography and all that I do think it has something going for it that a lot of other films of this era don't have and Mm. that is it is sort of the camera work is sort of balletic it it moves in a really interesting way particularly all of the scenes where they're actually making the film and Mm. you start close in on the actors and then the camera pulls back to show you all the people behind the camera. Um yeah. I loved that shot where it was the sort of final scene of the film that they were making during the kind of Georgia section where it was her final scene and she's crying over the dead body of the of gaucho um (laughs) the bloke in the thing and it was a really long pan where it showed you her performance it panned back to show you all the people on one side of the camera then it panned round to show you jonathan shields and the director and everyone sitting around the main camera and then it took you right up past all the lighting rig right up Mm. into the act act, and you could see the effect that her performance was having on all of the crew and yes he keeps going on about how she's going to be the star she's the star she's the star she's the star but certainly the way that she treats everybody else in the during the making of the film Mm. and the kind of camaraderie but also that shot kind of showing you that the process of making a film is so much a kind of team effort it's yeah. so about the company that you assemble,
0: which is the point of the movie. Yeah,
1: e- yeah, really? exactly. That's yeah,
0: the whole that's the whole point is actually it, it's not this one man who mm. makes it all happen. It's not really Jonathan Shields who makes these movies happen. It's the team that he assembles around him, and that's yeah. what he comes to learn at the end. That's sort of what I was trying to get to earlier, mm, um, mm. but slightly. Uh, less coherently. Um that's the point that he gets to really, where he realizes that actually he can't make a movie by himself. It's not just a Jonathan Shields picture. It's this whole team of people who bring their expertise.
1: Mm. Do you not think he already knows that though?
0: No, I'm not sure he does. No, I think I think I think they're all Jonathan Shields pictures and the way they're spoken of uh-huh. by other characters in the movie, they're all Jonathan Shields' pictures. It's an interesting time in Hollywood, actually, um, because producers were were kind of the star of the show a little bit, and the directors and writers and actors involved are all just sort of cogs in the machine, and it's the producer who gets his name gets top billing.
1: Well, like in um, um, in that first section where he with Fred the director, where it's he you know fred comes into the room and he's like what's our next project and it is it's the producer the head honcho who is reading the scripts and distributing them amongst his staff of which directors writers they they're all kind of part of a consistent team of people which exactly like um you said when you were doing the housekeeping all the people who made this film work together all the time on Loads and loads of stuff because they were all attached to MGM who made this film. You know, the making of this film and the content of this film are one and the same.
0: They went to work every day at the movie factory.
1: Exactly. And it's interesting that I think Vincent Minnelli coming from the world of musical theatre in new york and broadway and um, which is kind of where he came from he was able to have this kind of dual slightly hypocritical lens on the whole thing which is that he mm-hmm. absolutely loved it he absolutely loved the glamour and the drama and the chaos and the you know all of that shit but he also was able to be quite cynical about it and quite cutting and quite harsh I think that's one of the things that makes this film successful for me is that it is quite it feels honest, both mm. in the kind of excavation of the grimy side, but also the absolute appreciation for the appeal of the sparkly bits, the tinsely bits, you know?
0: Talking about um this musical theatre background and that that big Uh, sort of sweeping shot that you were describing a moment ago it's not surprising he sort of brings things like that to it because of his musical background like most of his his biggest successes as a filmmaker were musicals um, Meet Me in St. Louis and America in Paris and Gigi I am not entirely sure he's at ease directing a melodrama that's slightly noir inflected
1: interesting yeah yeah i
0: I just i find the tone of the film a little uneven it sort of veers around and never really quite settles in a particular groove
1: i know what you mean i think because the um there's two the two scenes that really stick out for me are that scene where they're trying to work out how to make the cat man film scary and the scene between him and georgia where then lila turns up i think knowing that we were heading for that scene between him and georgia Mm -hmm. and then you see the first part where it very much feels like the beginning of singing in the rain where don lockwood is talking about how him and his mate had a show fit as a villain ready for love all of that stuff and it's kind of how they grafted Um, and grifted their way into the movie business and how he became this big star kind of by chance. The whole first part of that section with Fred felt like that. And it's even got the same kind of like, ooh, music. So to go from that to then the scene where George is driving her car And trying to kill herself in her car it is so it is such tonal whiplash but i wonder if that's deliberate because it is about movies i suppose to be generously spirited i wonder if maybe he is trying to use loads of different influences to tell the story of hollywood Mm -hmm. but then to be ungenerously spirited maybe he just didn't know what he was doing as well I mean, we've banged on about this before, but I think to me it's that it's about the economy. You know, we understand exactly where we're at. Three minutes in, we know who the three people are who are sitting in the chairs, why they've been called, who it is who's called them, and why they and the fact that they don't want to work with him. Like all of that is in the first three minutes of the film. And one minute of that is the titles. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, it is. It's quite long, you know. It's an hour and fifty-seven, but I do, and it does. It does feel overlong, and I think that part of that is the third prong. Um,
0: We've not really talked about that third section.
1: No, because by that point, I was like, I don't like. I'm, I'm sort of ready for the film to be ending. I don't know. What do you think about that third section?
0: I, my favourite section is actually the the first section
1: with the director.
0: My interest kind of wanes as the movie continues. Yeah, I, I quite enjoy that first section, seeing them sort of. Set the studio up and sort of make their first steps into the business. I find the second section a little baggy. And by the end of the second section, I am kind of ready for the film to be done. But that third section is only about half an hour. Yeah, that's the true. a two-hour runtime, um, so by that point, I'm like, okay, well, we're in, we're into the to the denouement of the film, but it doesn't really, it, the film doesn't really work like that. It doesn't sort of hurtle towards a climax of the movie. Like we've sort of just had the climax, really. I don't, yeah, stru- structurally, I think it's it's messy to me. It doesn't work.
1: I completely agree with you. The truth is that if I would sit down and watch it again, I'd probably watch it up until the point where she tries to crash her car and then I probably wouldn't bother with the rest. Even though there's loads of really good stuff in that final section. But mm. exactly like you say, the car crash feels like the climax. That scene where he reveals himself feels like the climax. And then you go back to mustachioed him, all buttoned up. It kind of, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah it kind, it sort of, it feels like it's in the wrong order. <laughs> yeah, and then the,
0: yeah. But it's, but it's definitely not in the wrong order. No. But it does feel that way. And particularly when, like, so the, the big thing that happens in that third section, the big sort of tragedy, is the plane crash, which you don't see. It's, uh, you know, a newspaper headline. And you go, oh, okay, oh, she's dead. All right, shit. And I did, I did enjoy when they, they they go they go to the crash site in a helicopter. And they arrive there and there's all press there with the cameras out and they're sort of asking intrusive questions. <laughs> They sort of get fobbed off. And one of the press guys says, oh, what's the matter with you? Don't want to play ball with the press? No, I don't want to play ball with the press. My wife (laughs) has just died. Why don't you just leave me alone? You fucking vulture.
1: Like immediately, Kirk Douglas is like, buck up, mate. It's probably for the best. Let's crack on with writing. Yeah, I think I possibly want to like this film more than I do. But what mm. I like about it, I really like it quite intensely. That that bit of acting from Kirk Douglas in that scene with um, debris, I think that that yeah. like that's on my top moments of acting on screen. It's like it's amazing. Yeah. The script is brilliant. Everything about it is just so wonderful. It looks amazing. That whole setup of that scene, the slow reveal. All of that. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. So, uh, but Mm. you're right. The structure does not work. I actually think part of my problem with the film is that Jonathan Shields doesn't go on any kind of journey because I think that he does know from the start that his success is to do with assembling the right team, which is Mm. why he passes his friend over in the first bit because he's like this film won't succeed if I don't assemble the Mm. right team and you aren't right for this team. So I think that he knows that the whole way through and I think that doesn't really go on a journey. I don't think he changes. But I sort of don't mind because I quite enjoy watching him be the way he is the whole way through.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not sure I'm happy with that. (laughs) (laughs) I I did have a thought, just as a sort of um, interesting experiment, obviously... Everything in movies at the moment is a remake. And I did think while watching this, I was like, huh, this probably would be ripe for a remake. It'd be relevant. So I was just wondering what what would such a remake look like? Pitch it to me.
1: I love that question, Ed. Oh, my God. Well, okay. first. Oh, this is great. I love this game. So, okay. Um, First question, are we doing a remake set in the 50s or are we doing a remake but bringing it up to date and making it about Uh, the movie industry as it exists now?
0: Much like when Star Is Born has been remade, Mm -hmm. which it's been remade three times since it's original, Mm. um, it's updated each time. And I think it Mm -hmm. would only be worth doing if it was updated. So a remake set now.
1: Remake set now, my God. Well, I think that there isn't a way of doing a film... About a high-flying movie producer set now that doesn't in some way touch on the Me Too movement. I agree. What that might be, I don't know. But okay, who are we casting?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Ryan Gosling, he's in everything.
1: He's an absolute. <laughs> Actually, do you know? I kind of buy it. He'd be it. great. He'd be great yeah. because he does have. He has a kind of a quiet fizzling energy. I mm-hmm. believe him doing violence. Um, I mm-hmm. believe him being vulnerable. I yeah, that yeah, totally sold. Great. Jonathan Shields, played by Ryan Gosling. I mean, what's the spin on it? Rather than it being about getting a movie made, is it something to do with saving reputation? Is it about the producer who has helped make the careers of a director, an actor, and a writer needing Mm -hmm. their help? Do each of them hold a key piece of information that will either exonerate or condemn him in some way? Mm -hmm. And it's about cashing in his chit because he made their careers.
0: I think it has to be... About him getting back on his feet again. So I think, I think, I think it's an uh, it's an important part. I know you, you didn't feel like Shields went on that much of a journey, but he does. He does hit the heights and then come crashing down. Mm. He does have to learn something from that. He has to be humbled by it in some way.
1: A rise and fall
0: with the potential for a rise again. I mean, it's the classic Hollywood story. I mean, look at we talked about Mel Gibson the other week on well, yeah, um,
1: yeah.
0: our twenty twenty four preview. I mean, mm. fucking hell, you want to rise a fall and a rise again, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of those it's the it's the classic Hollywood thing where like people hit the heights and then something condemns them and they're doomed to never work in this town again until you know 10 years later when they do and there's been you know there've been a lot I think maybe if you take like somebody like Robert Downey Jr mm. as 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 a model for it, and actually he'd be he'd be good casting. He'd be really good casting. He'd be really good casting. Yeah, he took him as a model because he was somebody who was a big star again, a famous father as well. Really, he really crashed and burned, and yeah, there were a lot of drug problems after his success. Like he had that early success, and a lot of sort of drug problems and all sorts of shit that he got into, and nobody wanted to work with him. And then I think it was gradual climb a little bit but then i think it was when he worked with shane black on uh, kiss kiss bang bang
1: which is one of my favorite films i oh, love fantastic. kiss kiss bang bang
0: and that was the film that convinced marvel that they could trust him to helm essentially their whole project yeah because he was the star of yeah that whole thing really
1: absolutely um,
0: he he was he was the thing that held it all together and yeah so i think it it took somebody having faith in him in the first place to get him to that place where he could be trusted. I think there's something in a story like that, perhaps.
1: Mm. You know, it's called The Bad and the Beautiful. Not that I want Mm -hmm. to unpick this too much, but Mm -hmm. it implies that in the film, there is someone who represents the bad and someone who represents the beautiful. I do think there is a question about who is the bad and who is the beautiful and what does Mm. beauty mean and what does badness mean? you know again that thing about like if if the beautiful bit is the art the the movie making um and then there is the bad which is the kind of morality about getting mm. those films made and what people are willing to do to each other in order to get those things made but then there's also mm. the beautiful in the intentions behind it you know the 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 driving force you know what makes people do the bad things is ultimately the pursuit of Something beautiful. So I do think there's. It's murky. It probably doesn't want warrant any further unpicking than that. I just thought I'd flag it. It's interesting
0: that you bring up the title. <laughs> and I t- I'd, I'd tell you for why. There's actually there's a little bit. This is from the Wikipedia page. So uh, the film was shot. As tribute to a bad man, but the studio worried that it would be mistaken for a Western with a title like that.
1: And starring Kirk Douglas, who's a very kind of... Well, indeed.
0: Um, The title was changed to The Bad and the Beautiful at the suggestion of MGM's head of publicity, Howard Dietz, who took it from F. Scott Fitzgerald. Hausman, this is the producer, admitted he thought it was a dreadful title. It's a loathsome, cheap, vulgar title. But then when the film became successful, it seemed like one of the greatest titles ever thought of. It's certainly been imitated enough. Anytime anybody's really hard up for a title, they just take two adjectives and string them together with an and in between. <laughs> <laughs> Which, let's face it, is something that is still works to this day. Oh my God. Two adjectives with, a thing in be- with an and in between. I,
1: I tell you what, if you <laughs> want to do a young adult fantasy book.
0: As something of something.
1: It's uh, Even further, it's a something of something and something.
0: Sure, yeah.
1: (laughs) Daughter of smoke and bone, um, Mm -hmm. a court of silver what's-its, a thing of thing and thing, you know. um, Uh, That
0: has been the case going all the way back to The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Exactly. Are you suggesting that there is a formula for this? Shut (laughs) up. Are you suggesting that it's a... What?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hang on. If there's a formula, we could follow it and become famous and rich. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. I'm going to get some uh, suave movie star to come and romance Gem away from you so that you can focus on your work, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I think it's maybe time for us to play the game then.
0: I think it probably is. (laughs) I'm quite excited about this one.
1: (laughs) I've got absolutely no hope in hell of guessing what you've picked. Um, So just a reminder, um, if anyone's new to the podcast, this has three stages. Um, I'm going to try and guess what Ed has chosen. I'm going to say what I would have chosen, um, and then Ed is going to reveal what he's picked uh, as the next film that we're going to cover. As I said, I I have no fucking clue what you've picked. <laughs> I was going to say mm-hmm. that I think you've picked Paths of Glory, but then earlier you said how you'd quite like to watch Paths of Glory, and so that makes mm-hmm. me think that maybe you haven't picked Paths of Glory. Interesting. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to stick with it. I think you've picked Paths of Glory. I would love mm-hmm. to see this film. Um I love Kirk Douglas. I would love to mm-hmm. see him in a role like this. It's an early Stanley Kubrick film and it's a war movie and we haven't covered any war movies yet and I'm I'm that's not true. usually a massive fan of war movies but I would really love to see Paths of Glory. So mm-hmm. that's what I think you've chosen. That's what I hope you've chosen. I would have followed Lana Turner and we'd be watching the um, original film of the Postman Always Rings Twice, um, oh, very nice. But I don't think that's what you've chosen at all, Ed. So put me out of my misery. <laughs> what have you picked?
0: <laughs> so I was actually a little bit, uh, a little bit cheeky earlier when I was doing housekeeping because there is one of the credits on Cedric Gibbons, who Cedric Gibbons was uh, part of the art directing team who won uh, won the Oscar for this. Cedric Gibbons as I said, was uh, the guy who won 11 Oscars over the course of his career. His most notable credit, though, is for a film that he didn't win an Oscar for. He just got nominated for. It is a film from 1939, and we're at this point now, we've had a little run of films about Hollywood. Uh, So we had, started with Mulholland Drive, Mm -hmm. then we had Barton Fink, and now... The Bad and the Beautiful. They were all films about Hollywood, about the sort of business of making movies. All three of them, in some way, were about the studio system. Mulholland Drive less so, but it was still about the Hollywood machine. So actually, this credit on Cedric Gibbons' CV, uh, that he didn't win the Oscar for, but is more notable than any of the films that he did, it's a film that I would consider to be quite possibly the uh, greatest success, maybe the greatest achievement of the Hollywood studio system.
1: What the hell is it
0: we are going to watch from 1939 the wizard of oz <laughs> starring of course judy garland if there's who, a little
1: double connection there uh,
0: there's a little uh, a little bolstering link there um to strengthen it a little bit more amazing um, yeah. ed <laughs> it's a biggie
1: I can't wait to cover this. I can't wait to re-watch it. I haven't seen mm-hmm. The Wizard of Oz since I was in my school play of The Wizard of Oz when I was wow. 14, 15. Okay. And I only watched it then once mm-hmm. because I was doing the play. Kind of because it gives me that slightly like ick, oh God, I was a teenager once feeling. Do you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure, I get that. <laughs> I watched it a bunch when I was a kid and I've seen it sort of intermittently when it's been on the telly as an adult. Uh, I'm really looking forward to sitting down and devoting some time and energy to it. Having a look. Where can we watch it? It's available on Prime. Yeah. So for anybody who's not seen The Wizard of Oz what have you been doing this whole time? (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Also crack on, watch it on Prime. Uh, It's only about an hour and 40 minutes long Mm. and my memory of it Um, is that it's an absolute joy. There's going to be a lot for us to dig into as well, I think. Um, So I guess all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening. Uh, If you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, please do write... Uh, a nice little review. You can like it, subscribe. Maybe you know, set your app to auto download. We like that. <laughs> um, also, get in touch with us on any of the social medias that you can find in the in the show notes. Uh, so we've had a little bit of break of a break from the social medias, but we're getting back up on that now that the new year has started. Uh, so yeah, we'll be active on uh, TikTok and Instagram, and um, i going to be active on Threads as well. I think that's going to be the new thing. Oh. <laughs> Threads. Oh yeah, no. Threads keeps uh, keeps sending me push notifications. Oh, such and such person is on Threads now, so I'm like, all right, well, let's uh, let's be on Threads too. My
1: problem with Threads is that Threads hmm. is the name of that film about um, nuclear fallout in Sheffield that apparently is one of the most harrowing things ever made ever. So <laughs> I feel a bit like, oh, Threads. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> So join us on there so that I can be confused and uncomfortable.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Please, please do. Um, Anyway, thank you so much for listening and uh, help us spread the word. Love you lots. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye.